Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of One of a Kind by Andrew McManus. This transplant from Northern Ireland to Cleveland is our featured Ohio musical artist this week. So stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. your co-host Steve Yoder and with me is our storyteller and researcher Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi everybody. You know, maybe it's the reporter in me, but every once in a great while I learn about a person and think to myself, I would give anything to spend a long afternoon just sitting quietly, sipping some tea while they tell me their entire life story. <laughs> oh, yeah, like Shep Tinker. Oh, you know it. Ohio's incorrigible horse thief. He definitely makes the list. So I'm guessing you've got another one to add to the list? I do. And I don't think I'm overstating the case because the woman in tonight's episode had such a colorful and interesting life. A Pulitzer Prize winning author acknowledged she inspired characters in his novels. Well, that's saying something. What's her claim to fame? You know, not really any single thing. She did shoot and kill a man who wouldn't stop asking her to marry him. So there is that. What? It's okay. You're going to be on her side when you hear it. Really, though, Phoebe Wise was a private person, a confirmed bachelorette, just trying to live her life in her Mansfield farmhouse at the turn of the last century. Some reporters called her a hermit and a recluse, though I wouldn't use that term at all. She was definitely eccentric, but I get the feeling she was just ahead of her time, and her Victorian-era neighbors didn't really know what to make of an independent woman going against the norms. One thing her neighbors got right, they saw her as brave, courageous, and someone to be admired, especially after a series of violent events kept thrusting her into the news. She survived them all, and when she finally died in 1933 at a ripe old age, the Mansfield News Journal referred to her as the most memorable and beloved character to have come out of Richland County in more than half a century. All right, enough of the build-up. Now I really want to hear more. Well, there are mysteries here, as required. I'll get to those at the end. But first, sit back and let me introduce you to Phoebe Wise. was the baby of her family, the youngest of 10 children born to Christian and Julia Wise. 
Her parents had come to Richland County from Connecticut in 1833, and they fared very well. Her father was a civil engineer, a prominent educator, and a preacher in the local Dunkard Brethren Church. Her mom was a school teacher. They settled on a large farm right outside Mansfield city limits, on the very land that will one day be the site of the Ohio State Reformatory. With two educators as parents, Phoebe grew up quite bright. She was a school teacher herself by the age of 14. She had other siblings become teachers too. Her brother and sister, Frank and Ella Wise, they went on to teach at state universities. But Phoebe remained a teacher in the local Mansfield School District. She was also an accomplished piano player. The one interest Phoebe didn't have was men. Trust me, you're going to understand why before we're done here. Phoebe never married. She once told a reporter, I don't like men. They're not truthful and not satisfied with one woman. I never saw one I'd leave my mother or father for, not one. I don't look to humans for my happiness. People are too treacherous. Left on her own, Phoebe would have been happy to spend her life surrounded by animals and nature rather than people. But people sure looked up to her. Well, she was statuesque, six feet tall, and not bad looking. People called her comely, one of those old-fashioned words that meant attractive. They also remarked that she looked Native American. And a legend even grew out of that to say she was a descendant of an Indian princess and an early settler, though I don't think that was true. She was also hard to miss. She wore bright, mismatched clothing and excessive jewelry, and she wasn't shy about sharing her thoughts. She would freely give her opinions about things and was admired for her sharp wit. The year 1891 was a strange and terrible one for Phoebe, Her birth date was never certain, but she was probably approaching 30 years old by then. As Phoebe's parents aged, it fell to her to take care of them. She lost her father, we're not sure when. Then her mother died in September of 1891. With her mom gone and her completely on her own, it's almost as if a wall that had been protecting Phoebe from the world had dissolved. First, There was the man newspapers referred to as the half-crazy Hungarian, Jacob Kastanowicz. He had spent time in jails and asylums, and he was obsessed with Phoebe, harassing her incessantly with proposals of marriage. Phoebe wanted nothing to do with him, and the local sheriff would on occasion have to arrest him to get him out of Phoebe's hair. In October of 1891, just a month after her mother's death, a one-sentence report in the Mansfield Weekly News read, Sheriff Tressel took Jacob Kastanowitz, the man who caused Ms. Phoebe Wise so much annoyance, to the Toledo Insane Asylum Wednesday morning. That was it, short and sweet, but written in a way that suggests this was all widespread knowledge in the community. Jacob was out of her life for the time being, but the year was not done with Phoebe yet. When Julia Wise died, Phoebe inherited the family home on Olivesburg Road, a farmhouse surrounded by lilac bushes and gardens of dahlias, cosmos, and vines. And so Phoebe was now presumed to be rich. 
After all, her parents had sold most of their property to the state for that fancy new Mansfield prison. They also sold land for a small rental house development called Hancock Heights and gave them additional land to build a school. It was this rumor of wealth that led to a night of terror in the week leading up to Christmas. Three young men decided they wanted Phoebe's perceived fortune. They went to her house about 7 p.m. and jimmied a window to get in. Phoebe heard a noise in the sitting room and headed that way when the three bandits, each concealed behind a red bandana over their face and a slouch hat on their heads, grabbed her. All three leveled revolvers at her and threatened to kill her if she offered any resistance. Even so, one of them grabbed her by the throat and choked her. Then they sat her down while they talked about how they had wanted to get into that house for the past five years. They asked Phoebe where her money and valuables were. She told them she would lead them to it, in the next room, her intent being to reach a revolver of her own, but they wouldn't let her leave the chair. Instead, they tied her up and tortured her. Some reports said they held a torch to the soles of her bare feet. Other reports said it was coal embers from the fireplace used to burn that sensitive flesh. Then they dragged her about, half pulling, half shoving her on those painful wounds as they spent an hour tearing the house apart in search of treasure. Before leaving the house, they asked permission to eat a pie, then proceeded to help themselves. They had an argument right in front of her about how they would divide the spoils, then told her if she ventured outside, they would be out there to shoot her. The trio fled with a diamond ring, a gold watch and a chain, a revolver, and $350 in cash. They left Phoebe tied up, but with considerable effort, she was able to free herself and get to a telegraph station near the prison to call the police. Marshall O'Donnell, who responded to the call, said he never saw a house in such a state of mess. Carpets were torn up, bedding tumbled about, articles taken from the wall and thrown to the floor, even some of the floorboards wrenched up. Phoebe didn't recognize any of the robbers, but her assailants identified themselves within a couple of days. They had gone to the Joe Alanis Saloon in Mansfield, and, in their intoxicated state, bragged about their deed. The morning of Christmas Eve, a large crowd assembled at the courthouse to support Phoebe as a couple of men were brought in for arraignment. In the end, charges of robbery were brought against three suspects, 34-year-old Henry Zweffel, 23-year-old William Tyler, and 20-year-old Thomas Bloor. Thomas Bloor was the first to confess. His account of what happened matched Phoebe's. Tyler maintained his innocence. Zweffel fled town, but authorities were dogged in their search of him. They learned Zweffel had served time in the pen for burglary before, and just a couple of years earlier, he was acquitted of manslaughter in Massillon. Marshall O'Donnell was not about to let him go. Over the next couple of weeks, the marshal obtained some letters Zweffel had sent to family and friends postmarked from Port Huron, Michigan. And so O'Donnell hopped a train and headed north.
Once there, he learned a man by another name, but matching all the particulars of Zweffel, was working for a firm of cigar makers. And that made sense, because Zweffel was a cigar maker by trade. They showed up at his workplace, arrested him right there, and O'Donnell took him back to Mansfield. Bloor, the youngest of the bandits, got a year of hard labor, the court accepting his attorney's argument that he was young and had just gotten into some bad company. Zweffel decided to plead guilty after all, hoping for leniency. But the judge said, You have put yourself beyond the pale of mercy in this crime. You must have studied the custom of barbarians to inflict such torture upon that lone woman. The judge gave him eight years of hard labor in the state pen. By the way, I found a reference that said Phoebe walked with a slight limp the rest of her life and credited the wounds inflicted by her torturers that night. Anyway, all of this brought attention to Phoebe that she really didn't want. She was lauded for being courageous and brave. A detailed account of the robbery was published in papers all over the country, and a portrait of Phoebe was printed in a police magazine. Admiring men started mailing in their proposals of marriage. Phoebe was quite a catch. Nice looking, had her own house, and, as the rumor still persisted, maybe stinking rich. Phoebe heard from a man in Connecticut who expressed his eagerness to move to Ohio for her. Another tried to earn her hand by forwarding his sure cure recipe for burned feet. Did you answer any of the letters? A reporter asked her. No, indeed, she said. I destroyed them. Phoebe said yet another suitor drove up from Columbus to her house and suggested a man should be about the place to fend off robbers and he could be that man. Phoebe said, I told him my hired girl might be glad to get a good home and that I would send her in. I sent her in and she got rid of him pretty quick. As Phoebe tried to put that incident behind her, the other annoyance in her life was revving up again. That crazy Hungarian, Jacob Kastanowicz, he was out of the asylum. He had been brought before a judge who determined his conduct was more in the spirit of deviltry than the freaks of an insane man, and he discharged him for good behavior. That was the spring of 1892. By July, Jacob was inundating Phoebe with mail that was described as obscene, lewd, and lascivious. In letters pleading for Phoebe to meet with him, he made drawings with crayons that the Mansfield Weekly News described as being of unmentionable character. The fact that he used the U.S. mail for harassing Phoebe made him a new enemy, the federal government. He was arrested and charged for sending improper matter through the mail, and he went away again for now. Phoebe may have liked to be alone, but she did entertain on occasion. Back in the 19th century, newspapers loved to report on the minor social interactions of residents. In 1895, I saw a column that mentioned Phoebe had entertained R.R. Ward, his wife, and the clerks of the Lions store at her home one Tuesday night, that there had been music and refreshments and made for an enjoyable evening in every sense of the term. The next time Phoebe made the local news, 
it was 1898, because Jacob Kastanowitz was back at it again. A reporter commented to Phoebe that it appeared her only recourse was to marry the man or shoot him. As it turned out, she chose the latter. One Sunday night in late May, Jacob came to her house at midnight and began rattling her doors and windows, trying to find a way in. When he couldn't get in, he went to the nearby woodshed and got his hands on an axe, and he stood on her porch, threatening to break the door down if she didn't open it. From the other side of the wood, Phoebe told him, If you touch that door, I will kill you with the rifle I have in my hands. She was indeed holding her Winchester. Jacob replied, My heart, in case you want to be sure, is four inches above the bottom of the left door panel. Then he laid the first blow of the axe at the door. Phoebe aimed right where he told her to and fired. She heard a gasp, the scraping noise of him falling down the length of the door, and then silence. Fearing a trick, Phoebe sat throughout the night, facing the door with the rifle across her knees. When daylight came, she opened the door and found him dead. Phoebe calmly took a streetcar to town and turned herself into police. At her court arraignment, a large crowd again gathered to cheer her on, many of them offering to serve as witnesses to the fact that Jacob deserved it. The prosecutor agreed, and Phoebe walked. There was this fun little exchange between her and the judge, which demonstrates why the town found her so wonderfully colorful. She was asked her age and replied, I have never seen a record of my birth. When the judge asked if she might be, oh, 35 or 40, she said, I know that I am more than 16. So the judge put her age down as 16 plus. In 1911, Phoebe had to confront a new pair of burglars on her property. Men. Again. Apparently, they had no idea who they were tangling with. It was November, and Phoebe was returning home when she decided to first check on her horse in the barn. She walked up to him and rubbed his nose, but he was acting funny. Phoebe knew something was wrong. She looked about, and sure enough, she spotted a man skulking around the hen house. She picked up a piece of gas pipe and flung it at him, but he didn't run. He began to approach her, so she grabbed a pitchfork. The way Phoebe described it, he didn't want to fight with a pitchfork, so she offered to find another weapon for him to tangle with. She then retreated to the house and went upstairs to get her shotgun. From the bedroom window, she could see the two men running across her field. She told a reporter she was pretty sure she could have picked one of them off, but she decided not to shoot. It may have been this story that led to Phoebe's horse becoming something of a legend. He was a white Arabian pony named Spotty, which she raced from a colt. Years later, townspeople would swear that sometimes Phoebe would take the horse into her house for protection and that he would rear up on his hind legs and fight viciously with his front legs if his owner needed help. I can't see her taking her horse into the house, but she did once tell a reporter that every night in the summertime, Spotty would sleep outside her window where she could see him and would warn her if anyone was coming near. 
Spotty beats any watchdog I ever knew, she said. Now Phoebe was quite the handy woman. She was her own carpenter and handled the maintenance of her own house. A reporter once felt the need to comment that while he was interviewing her, she was up on the roof, plastering the chimneys for the winter. And lots of folks have written about Phoebe's fashion. Here's one description written by Timothy Brian McKee. Phoebe frequently wore an old Victorian-era gown with ruffles and trounces, a bit of bustle bumped out on her backside, and a train that dragged in the dust. Her hands had long, lacy gloves with a knot of sparkling glass jewels on her knuckles. On top of her head was a wide-brimmed low hat that she always decorated with fresh flowers cut from her garden and streams of silk ribbons. Phoebe carried herself with dignity, even majesty, and the townspeople loved her for it. They also loved hearing her opinions, which was usually served with a plate of wit. In 1914, a reporter asked her about the national suffrage movement and if she would vote if given the chance. Phoebe said, Well now, you just watch me once and see. I have spent the past 25 years of my life wrestling with crooked politicians and scheming lawyers without seeing the urgent need of a few good, clean-minded women in the field of public affairs. The story went on to say, There is not a person in Mansfield who does not know Miss Wise personally or by sight, and those who know her best readily appreciate the depths of her strong-minded character. The reporter said, as he talked to Phoebe, her horse Spotty walked up behind her and nestled against her shoulder. He said two kittens played in Phoebe's lap, several chicks jumped about her chair, and that he wouldn't be surprised to see the birds themselves flock down to greet her. Phoebe told him, I love everything in the world that God created, I guess, unless it is a man. But it has been at their hands that I have suffered almost all my worst trouble. In 1923, when Scotty was 33 years old, Phoebe finally agreed to allow him to be euthanized. Township trustees had been tenderly suggesting she let him go for years. He was so aggressive, nobody dared go near him but for Phoebe. But she resisted until he reached a ripe old age and was struggling to walk. The local newspaper even wrote an obituary for him. And that was a shame, because Phoebe needed a watch horse. Those rumors of wealth persisted her entire life. In her golden years, she once left home for the day and returned to find someone had entered in her absence and tore the house up yet again, shredding her upholstery, burrowing into walls, even prying the ebony framework from the fireplace. Phoebe had neither the strength nor the money to repair anything. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reports about her property routinely started referring to her as living in a shack. 
In November of 1932, Phoebe Weiss became ill. Friends, neighbors, and family looked after her in her final weeks. And although Phoebe Wise would become immortal, her body was not. She died on March 13, 1933. The news report of her death said, Although she has not been seen on Mansfield streets for almost a year, she was, for many years, a striking and arresting figure, dressed in queer bits of faded finery her piercing black eyes inspecting all who passed her, her rapier-like wit and ready tongue likely as not to call out her impression of passers-by. Nobody really knew Phoebe's age. The newspaper put it at 98 on the day of her passing, but that was way off. From my calculations, she must have been closer to 80. She died in the same house in which she was born and was buried in Mansfield Cemetery with her parents and sister Anna. Now, Phoebe was a local celebrity, but she had a cousin who was of national renown, and he preserved the essence of Phoebe in American literature. His name was Louis Bromfield. He was a famous author who grew up in Mansfield, and after his worldwide adventures, he went back home and settled about 13 miles from Phoebe's house on a place he called Malabar Farm. He wrote at least a couple dozen novels and won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1926. Some of the books became movies, including The Rains Came with Myrna Loy and Tyrone Power, but he was also a Hollywood screenwriter and rubbed elbows with all the silver screen stars. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, at the peak of their popularity, even got married at his Malabar farm. Bromfield wrote a novel called The Wedding Gown and revealed Phoebe Wise was the inspiration for it. He said his cousin, whom he had met as a boy, actually inspired many characters in his novels. Today, Malabar Farm is a state park, and you can tour the house, which looks inside and out just like Louis Bromfield had left it. Now, I told you there would be some mystery in this story, and we've got two. First, the whole reason I even learned about Phoebe was because I was researching haunted roads for that Campfire Stories episode we did last week, and Reformatory Road, at the intersection with Olivesburg Road where Phoebe lived, kept showing up on lists. Ghost hunters say they've seen a spirit roaming that road at night, and historians are convinced it's Phoebe. That because Phoebe lived in fear that more men would come to try and rob her, she must be lingering after death, warding off torturing burglars and love-struck stalkers. The second mystery is that rumor of treasure. Because even after her death, the legend wouldn't die. The week after her funeral, Richland County deputy sheriffs were called to her estate where vandals had ravaged her home one final time. Books were tossed from shelves, their covers ripped open looking for niches that might hold a valuable. They found a French bisque doll with large dark eyes given to Phoebe as a child, its body split open as someone searched for some potential cash hidden inside. If Phoebe had a fortune, she hid it well. A month after her death, probate court ruled her estate to be valued at $1,000. That's a mere $23,000 today. 
A month after that, the public was invited in to buy what little she had left. A piano, three beds, assorted chairs, tables, carpets, and dishes. Wow, what a colorful life. I have a few things to say here. <laughs> this place needs a man about it. You know what I mean? Come on! <laughs> well, he didn't know Phoebe, or he wouldn't have said right. that. And Phoebe, what are you doing here? A man takes... I had to tell him my wife took an axe through the door. You know what I mean? What is that? Who does that? <laughs> uh, somebody who probably needed to stay in that asylum. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, I do have an interesting take about uh, Phoebe being a ghost. Sounds to me like Phoebe would have been more happy to move on. Um, maybe it's the folks at Mansfield who don't want to let go. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, am I right or am I right? Wouldn't she make your bucket list of people you'd love to have lunch with? <sighs> For sure. I'm so glad her stories have been preserved, though, even in little efforts like this podcast. She definitely deserves to be remembered. Now, you've got to come back for our next week's episode because it's a story about another young woman growing up the same time as Phoebe Wise, living right next door to the property that would become Malabar Farm. And Lewis Bromfield would write about her, too. But her story couldn't be more different because she's remembered for killing her entire family. And they say her ghost and the ghosts of her victims haunt the same house. Plus, I'll tell you all you need to know about taking the perfect day trip to Malabar Farm because there are multiple reasons to go. Uh, Well, I can't wait. Happy Halloween to everybody out there. Happy Halloween. And that's it for tonight, listeners. You can find photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode at our website, ohiomysteries.com. And now more about our featured Ohio musical artist of the night. Andrew McManus is a singer-songwriter from Northern Ireland, where he was heavily influenced by the local myths and legends of Irish literature and developed a love for Irish folk tunes. He used to perform in pubs and coffee shops around Ireland and England, but for the last few years, we got him to ourselves. Based in Cleveland now, he's a regular at area venues and music festivals. Andrew gave us our pick of his most recent album, Days of Wonder, I could have thrown a dart at the playlist, and anywhere it landed, we would have had a gem. But I picked one of a kind, because Phoebe Wise was one of a kind. I rarely try to match the topics of our episodes with our featured songs, but I made an exception in this case. Now, if you want to see Andrew in person, his schedule is on his website, amcmanusmusic.com. For now, his next appearance is November 26th at the Wine Mill in Peninsula. So add that to your calendar. So here's the full version of One of a Kind by Andrew McManus. Enjoy, and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Through
sight that you meet me, my waves will surely carry me. My waves will surely carry me. I wish you knew how much I care. I watch the wind blow through your hair. And waves are rolling through my mind, saying you, my dear, are one of a kind. At a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.